0: in in a study of Solomon's life, and uh, we're probably in, I think this is Sermon 4 of that, and I want you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 11, if you will, that's an Old Testament book, 1 Kings chapter 11, and just kind of hold the place there right now, and uh, we're going to kind of go back and forth to see the example, the biography of the backslider show how this man's life began its deterioration to its tragic end. I want to read briefly the biography of a failure. He began his life with all the classic handicaps and disadvantages. His mother was a powerfully built, dominating woman who found it difficult to love anyone. She had been married three times and her second husband divorced her because she beat him up regularly, a husband abuse. The father of the child I am describing was, from, was uh, her third husband. He died of a heart attack a few months before the child's birth. As a consequence, the mother had to work long hours from his earliest childhood. She gave him no affection, no love, no discipline, and no training during those early years. She even forbade him to call her at work. Other children had little to do with him, so he was alone most of the time. He was absolutely rejected from his earliest childhood. He was ugly and poor and untrained and unlovable. When he was 13 years old, a school psychologist commented that he probably didn't even know the meaning of the word love. During adolescence, the girls would have nothing to do with him and he fought with the boys. Despite a high IQ, he failed academically and finally dropped out during his third year of high school. He thought he might find a new acceptance in the Marine Corps, they reportedly build men and so he wanted to be one, but his problems went with him. The other Marines laughed at him and ridiculed him. He fought back. He resisted authority and was court-martialed and was thrown out of the Marines with an undesirable discharge. So there he was, a young man in his early 20s, absolutely friendless and shipwrecked. He was, a small, and, he was small and scrawny in stature. He had an adolescent squeak in his voice. He was balding. He had no talent, no skill, no sense of worthiness. He didn't even have a driver's license. Once again, he thought he could run from his problems, so he went to live in a foreign country. But he was rejected there, too. Nothing had changed. So while there, he married a girl who herself had been an illegitimate child, and he brought her back to America with him. Soon he began, she began to develop the same contempt for him that everyone else displayed. She bore him two children, but he never enjoyed the status and respect that a father should have. His marriage continued to crumble. His wife demanded more and more things that he could not provide. Instead of being his ally against the bitter world as he hoped She became his most vicious opponent. She could outfight him, and she learned to bully him. On one occasion, she locked him in the bathroom as punishment. Finally, she forced him to leave. He tried to make it on his own, but he was terribly lonely. After days of solitude, he went home and literally begged her to take him back. He surrendered all pride. He crawled. He accepted humiliation. He came on her terms. Despite his meager salary, he brought her $78 as a gift, asking her to take it and spend it any way she wanted. But she laughed at him. She belittled his feeble attempts to supply his family needs. She ridiculed his failure. She made fun of his sexual impotency in front of a friend who was there. At one point, he fell on his knees and wept bitterly as the greater darkness of his private nightmare enveloped him. Finally, in silence, he pleaded no more. No one wanted him. No one had ever wanted him. He was perhaps the most rejected man of our time. His ego lay shattered in a fragment in a fragmented dust. The next day, he was a strangely different man, He arose and went to the garage and he took down a rifle he had hidden there. He carried it with him to his newly acquired job at a book storage building. And from a window on the third floor of that building shortly after noon, November the 22nd, 1963, he sent two shells crashing into the head of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Lee Harvey Oswald, the rejected, unlovable failure, killed the man who more than any other man on earth embodied all the success and beauty and wealth and family affection which he lacked. In firing that rifle, he did the only one thing he ever did well in his miserable life. Read it. And weep. And I guess that you and I can understand how a man who had such a background as that could end up in such tragedy. It's not hard to figure out that that man's life would end like that. But how do you explain the strange events of the last years of a successful man's life? I mean, we've been studying the life of a man who had all the tangible signs of success from the very day he was born. 1 Kings chapter 10 gave us those four tangible signs of success. If they had Forbes magazine in that day, he would have, it would have been written up, this man is a success in every, in every meaning of the word. Had there been a yearbook in his day, he would have been certainly selected as the man most likely to succeed. There are these four tangible s- signs of success that are predominant in Solomon's life. He had a fortune. It is estimated that his annual income was between six twenty-five and 65000000 dollars And that doesn't count the gifts that were lavished upon him, priceless gifts by the people who adored him. And that was in a day that was prior to the recession. He was a man who had great fame. So chapter 10, verse 22 says that he was a God-blessed man and the hand of God was upon him. He was a man of amazing fame. His name was a household word in every kitchen, in that ancient world, in the known world, everybody knew him. He was a man who had power. And so 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 20 says that Israel and Judah were as numerous as the sand on the sea. And he reigned in peace because every surrounding nation feared him as well as revered him. And he had pleasure. So that if you turn sometime and read, as we have done recently, the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll find that he enjoyed the pleasure of sensuality and the pleasure of fulfillment so that he withheld himself from nothing. He was a man of esteem and power and fortune and pleasure. And so what happens to a man like that who obviously had the blessing of God upon his life from the very beginning. What are the characteristics of this personal deterioration that begin to appear in the life of Solomon, that begin to show his demise, his failure, his downfall, that ended in one of the greatest tragedies that is written in, in, in literature? Well, I see that there were some internal attitudes that developed in the life of this man. And so I want you to turn to the third chapter of 1 Kings. And I want to read verse 1. You're going to hold the place of 1 Kings chapter 11. And, and, and with your thumb, I want you to thumb your Bible and catch 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 8 okay so we've got first kings 3 1 kings 11 and second chronicles chapter 8 and i need to i think explain that chronicles the 8th chapter of second chronicles is written kind of as a parallel book a parallel historical record of what went on that's described in chapter 3. So that 2 Chronicles chapter 8 parallels and, and amplifies what is said in chapter 3. Okay, so chapter 3 verse 1 tells about Solomon taking this woman to be his wife, an ungodly woman from a pagan nation. Now look at Second Chronicles chapter 8 verse 11. It says, then Solomon brought Pharaoh's daughter up from the city of David to the house which he had built for her. For he said, my wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel, because the places are holy where the ark of the Lord has entered. Now now watch this. He, He married this pagan woman who worshiped pagan gods, and he brought her to, to Israel, but he didn't bring her to the house of David, that was a holy place, and an unholy person, an unholy thing does not, has no place in a holy place. And so he built her a special house, and there's kind of an, an, an implication that he just kind of hid her here behind the scenes. And he went on functioning as the king under the name of one of God's men with the hand of God upon him, but he had this pagan woman he couldn't bring in a holy place and he had her in this house kind of behind the scenes. Now, internal attitude number one. He did not take God seriously. Now the danger I feel as we begin to study an Old Testament book and an Old Testament character is, to, is that we kind of get into this, well that's good for 2,000 years ago syndrome. Let me tell you something. This is so pertinent to our time especially to those of us who were raised in a Christian home, it's so easy to drift in a kind of a blasé, nonchalant attitude about God. And he didn't take God seriously. Worship for him had become a matter of going and and performing the sacrifice and the ritual, but God was not taken seriously. Now, why don't we take God seriously? I want to give you three reasons why. Number one, because of an overexposure to the things of God. There never was a time when when Solomon didn't hear the name of God. Never was a day. Nathan, as a matter of fact, some uh, uh, scholars suggest that Nathan the prophet raised this man And so every day of his life, he was a preacher's kid, every day of his life, he heard Jehovah's name, he heard God's name. And now David was not, he wasn't perfect, but he was a man after God's own heart. And it's evident in the scriptures that he had a tremendous testimony of the blessing of God. How could a man write the Psalms without knowing some kind of an experience with God? And so he was exposed every day of his life to the things of God and an overexposure to the things of God will lead to cynicism if your walk with God is not sensitive. Now having pastored a church in Fort Worth that was hard by the seminary and having had 200 seminary students every Sunday morning at church, let me tell you something. I can tell you from authority that you can get so uh, involved in the things of God if your walk with God is not sensitive, you'll become cynical about God and the things of God. Some of the most cynical people on earth are the people who have been in the church all their life. Secondly, he was he was indulged. Why do we take not take God seriously? He was indulged too much for nothing. I mean he had he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth he never had to sacrifice or work for anything he, he, too much too soon for Too much for nothing leads to irresponsibility. And being indulged leads to extravagance. And so he just lavished upon himself and his kingdom all this wealth. And when he didn't have anything else to to do, he just started saving. When you got everything, what do you do? He started saving chariots like stamps or coins. The third reason he... Didn't take God seriously. It was, I feel, he was promoted too fast, too far. He was just 20 years old when he became a king. And when you come into that kind of thing, that's a pretty heavy burden to place on the shoulders of a young man. And when you're promoted too fast, too far, it leads to professionalism. So he carried out his function in the kingdom without any sensitivity to feelings and to people. Leads to professionalism. Reminds me of professional evangelist who preached the same sermons and come into churches and not sense people's needs. There's a second internal attitude about this uh, the, uh, 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 in this man's life that led to his deterioration. It's found in Second Chronicles chapter eight, verse four. Look at that was this vast city that was just there to house this man's extravagant luxury and wealth. And it leads to the second internal problem. It leads to a lack of accountability. He felt no accountability to anyone on earth. No accountability to God. No accountability to anybody else. He answered to no man. He was going to live his life as he planned it. That's dangerous. No accountability. Let me say a word about unaccountability. What do you think about when you hear the word submission? Probably you'll answer marriage. It's something the wife must do, you know, submit. Most of the time when we hear the word submission, we, 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 we associate it with what a woman is to do in marriage. Let me tell you, that word means much more than that. It's a word that means obedience. It means yielding to another's needs. It's an expression of servanthood and humility and teachableness. And it's exactly what Solomon lacked, submission. He had no sense of responsibility to anyone, not even to God. No accountability. No submission of his life. No service. People were there for him. Tell you what, it's a dangerous night, folk, when we feel that people are here for us. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul leaves us a good example. Would you listen to this? It's the example of Jesus. Would you listen to this? This is the way you and I are to live. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped but emptied himself taking the form of a bond slave. A person who has a sense of accountability, a sense of submission is a man who lives under that appearance of Jesus as a servant of humanity, the bondservant of all. Now we're going to hurry and look at the steps to final failure. He's getting ready to go out to the garage and get the gun and he's fixing to head out to the um, area in Dallas where he's going to take the president's life. We see the final steps of failure begin to develop. Chapter 11 of 1 Kings. Now, you've got your finger right on that place. I want to show you something you may not know is there. I want you to flip back about six or eight books to the book of Deuteronomy and we'll look at verse, at chapter 17 beginning at verse 14. That's Deuteronomy, okay? That's right back over in the first part of the Bible. And we got chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, and we're holding place of 1 Kings. Now, in the 17th chapter of Deuteronomy, God is giving some guidelines for kings to follow before they ever had kings. God is setting some guidelines by which kings are to live before there ever was a king in Israel. And so these kings were supposed to live by these guidelines. I want you to notice. Look at this. It's amazing. Look at verse 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it and you say I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses one from among your countrymen you need to call you you get a man that God wants you to have this is a theocracy we're developing one of your own countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not from your countrymen. Now look at verse 16. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself. Now what do we say about Solomon? He was an equestrian. He was a horseman. And he had horses. He had cities of stables. And he he, uh, collected chariots. He shall not multiply horses for himself. Number seven, verse 17. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. The very three things that God forbade were the three things most prominent in this man's life. Isn't that amazing? Now read on with me. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the law, words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left in order that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. He said, now this man is to take these laws and to write them out in the presence of the priest and put them on his mirror so that every morning when he goes to shave, he'll see them, and put them on his refrigerator door so that every time he's there, he'll see them. He's to live under the accountability to the law of God. Let me tell you, folks, Nobody ever gets out from under the accountability of his life to God, wherever he is. And there's this implication here that if he did not do that, his sons, he nor his his sons would prosper in the land. And I think that's applicable to everybody here, even if he's not a king. I mean, because he's not a king. Now what are the four steps to failure? 1st King chapter 11. Number one, we're nearly through, so hang in there. Solomon willfully ignored God's written word. First step to failure. Chapter, one, chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian and Hittite woman. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, neither shall they associate with you, for they shall surely turn your heart away after their gods. He willfully ignored God's written word. You'd think he didn't know God's will and God's word. Of course he did. You think he wasn't familiar with Deuteronomy? He, as every Jewish man, memorized the entire book. You think Nathan had never preached to him out of Deuteronomy? Of course he did, but he took the Word of God and willfully ignored it. He closed his Bible and he put it on the shelf and he forgot about it. And he lived his life as though there were no word from God, no word from God. Second step to failure. He flaunted his own desires. Look at the last part of verse 2 of chapter 11. Solomon held fast to these loves. He held fast to them. He flaunted his desires. He brought them out to be seen publicly. He was no longer ashamed, no longer kept them in the secret houses. He flaunted them. And he said, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I enjoy. To hell with God's Word. Number three, he resisted being totally committed to the things of God. Verses 4 through 6. For it came about when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milkon, the detestable idol of the the, uh, Amorites, and Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And did not follow the Lord fully, look at that did not follow the Lord fully as David, his father, he resisted being totally totally committed to the things of God, he liked to hold on to part of it with one hand and the and the world with the other and if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. if he doesn't have you. A hundred percent, he doesn't have you at all. It's fully committed to the things of God. Number four, verses seven and eight, he pursued the satisfaction of ungodly companions. He got with the wrong crowd. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives. He did it for them. He burned incense and sacrifice to their gods. He did it for them. He wanted to please them. More than he wanted to please God. He wanted their friendship. He wanted their companionship. More than he wanted God's. Now, the application. Number one no heart is suddenly turned away. No heart is suddenly turned away. The scripture just screams out at us that Solomon's deterioration was a slow process. It happened as he got older. No heart has suddenly turned away. No man just suddenly turns his back on God. It's a process. Second application. No one who has slipped, no one who has slipped Need to stay in that position. If you slipped away from God, you don't have to stay there. If you've taken your journey into the far country, you don't have to stay there. If you've turned your back on God, you don't have to stay that way. For the good news of the New Testament story is that he not only stands to to receive us when we return, yea, he's out upon the way to find us. You don't have to stay the way you are. May we pray together. Our Father, it doesn't do any good for us to study the life of a man unless we're aware that that man could be us. God, we come to confront our own needs tonight, our own relationships, our own slippage, to confront the fact, Father, that we are not where we have been, where we ought to be. Oh, Father, help us to know that we don't have to stay, we don't have to dwell in the far country. That there is a banquet in the Father's house. I pray that those of us tonight who need to just get right with God will get right with God. Because I pray in the name of Jesus, ask it for his sake now we have these invitations just like we always do an invitation to come and accept jesus christ as your personal savior some of us have been praying for some of you for a long time we want you to be saved we'd like for you to know what it means to walk in forgiveness and redemption Wouldn't you like to come tonight and just accept Jesus as your personal Savior? You can know all about Him and never know Him. Would you come by faith to place your life in Christ? Say, I want to receive Jesus. I want to give my heart and life to Him. Or maybe you need to come and rededicate yourself to Christ because you see Part of this is a part of what's your, what you're experiencing right now in your own life. Or I pray that you'll come tonight in this way to say, I want to place my life in the church. I want to have the warmth of fellowship with Christian people because temptations are so great. And I want to walk with Christian people and find that encouragement. These are the invitations that are right out of God's Word and right from the Lord Himself to you. Would you come while we stand to sing?